1: This is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. And today, I am so honored to welcome my guest, the amazing Howard McGillan. Howard was and is one of Broadway's best leading men, having led the cast of such Shows As Anything Goes, The Mystery of Edwin Drood, The Secret Garden, She Loves Me, and Kiss of the Spider Woman on Broadway. He is also Broadway's longest running Phantom At 2,544 performances He was most recently seen on Broadway in Gigi And made his debut in the original Sunday in the Park with George He's also starred in Mac and Mabel And Anything Goes on the West End And in Peter Pan on tour Alongside Kathy Rigby I remember Mama High Spirits and Where's Charlie are among the shows he has done at Encores and musicals in Mufti and he also starred in the early workshops of Bounce, Rebecca and It Should Have Been You. And now without further ado, Howard McGillin.
0: So I guess I want to start by asking you how you first got interested in theater. Where it
2: right. Well, I guess I I came to theater through music because I had uh played the clarinet as a kid and uh I was in I was in uh the orchestra in high school and uh in the ninth grade actually and school was putting on the sound of music and I sat for the first time in a theater and in rehearsal and watched a show come together and I thought this would be really cool to do. Um and as a side note, a little footnote, my brother, my big brother had the lead. He was playing Captain Trapp. Oh. So uh <laughs> so I feel like I, I came full circle. And then
0: when did it switch from playing an instrument to wanting to be on stage?
2: Right. So that followed the next year. I, I immediately auditioned for the, the next musical, which was a year away. And uh, it was Paint Your Wagon. I don't know if you're familiar with that old show. I... And uh, yeah, so that was how I, that was my my debut on the stage
0: were there any actors that you saw either on screen or on a stage that you wanted to be like, or wanted to? Uh,
2: yeah, I guess i have to say, I loved all the, the great English actors at the time. Um, uh, uh, Richard Harris was a big hero of mine. Uh, certainly Sean Connery, you know, I loved, I loved all those big epic films that uh, from Bond to the, the kind of uh, costume dramas that Richard Harris would do. And I, I just I just loved it all so much.
0: Yeah. And were your parents sort of supportive of your interest or your wanting to not
2: at all. Oh <laughs> no, they were dead set against it. Um they they wanted me to do something reasonable and sensible with my with my life. Uh you know, they of course they were worried about how I would support myself. So um uh, uh, my mother was a big advocate for me from um, studying law or going to medical school or something something rational, <laughs> but I just, uh, I wouldn't listen. I, I had the theater bug and I, I couldn't shake it.
0: And where did you begin to study in terms of college and all of that?
2: Yeah, so I studied, uh, I, I, I went to the University of California, but to kind of appease my parents, to placate them and kind of keep them quiet, I I majored in history, even though I, I knew I was going to do theater. And, and all the way through college, I was just, every second, I was, I was in local theater productions and uh, studying acting. And uh, I, I, was, I was absolutely determined that was what I was going to do.
0: Yeah. And what were some of the things that you learned during this time that would influence
2: you? Or- Yeah, well, I was very lucky in that I I grew up in a town, uh, Santa Barbara, just north of L.A. by about 90 miles. And. As luck would have it, there was a a wonderful, generous guy named Bradford Dillman, who was a very famous actor of television and film and theater. Um, He played Eugene uh, Eugene O'Neill in in Long Day's Journey Into Night, uh, Edmund, the character of Edmund and uh, just many, many, many distinguished uh, moments in the theater. And he taught a class once a week in Santa Barbara, and he kind of handpicked the class from local theater, from high school theater, from the, the community theaters, and we would all assemble. There were maybe a handful of us, I would say maybe 10 at most, and we'd assemble once a week and we would do scene study and we would uh, do all kinds of sense memory exercises. Brad Dillon had come from a, from the Actors Studio and and Stanislavski was very big with, with the studio, of course. And he, he kind of passed all of that along to us. A great, great respect for acting and, and love for the craft.
0: And did you at this point recognize or did others around you that you were going to be
2: a star? Oh my God, no. Uh, uh, i i had no idea what the road was going to be of course you never do uh i just knew that i i was never happier than when i was on stage yeah. and uh playing a part um and it didn't matter whether it was a musical or uh you know shakespeare or anything I, anything i could get my hands on i wanted to do and i wanted to do it as well as i could um I, uh, you know, I just, I just was, I guess, pig headed. I just wasn't going to say, uh, take no for an answer. So uh, I just kept at it. And then I had another teacher who both of these wonderful influences early in my life have passed away. But uh, another great, wonderful man named Pope Freeman, who was the local theater director in Santa Barbara, who uh, who's basically took me under his wing and and put me in a lot of leading roles in shows and also gave me a chance to direct the first time. And uh, I assisted him as director on certain shows. Uh, so I, I really kind of learned the whole craft of theater uh, during that time in Santa Barbara, before I, before I even finished college.
0: And so how did your audition for Universal Studios happen?
2: Yeah, so uh, again, it was Brad Dillman who said, um, now that you're graduating from college would you like me to make an introduction for you uh with my agent in hollywood and he did and i went in and met him and he said um all right because you don't have any any film and you're not in a show right now that we could look at uh, i'd like you to come in and do an audition for for the for the agency so i went into the uh into the agency there in beverly hills and and did a scene from the Rainmaker with, with an acting partner for my acting class and uh, um, convinced them that I was worth their taking me on. And so they took me on. And one of the first things the agent said to me was, "I I think I think you would do well with this universal talent program that they have, where they basically develop new talent for, hopefully, the idea, of course, is that you'll end up becoming a, series star or a movie star (laughs) at some point uh and uh that all sounded just great with me because i had stars in my eyes so um so yeah so i that was that was how how it went about and in fact they sent me over to meet the head of the studio uh the uh talent program there that is and she said all right we'd like to see that same scene that you did for your agents so i Cranked up the scene and took it back into Universal, and um, and got the job. So they put me under contract in in what um, was at the time the only remaining contract player program in Hollywood. Hollywood at one point was was full of the contract system. Of course, was 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 a famous part of how Hollywood grew and how studios got richer. Is that they got a lot of young talent. Before they became stars, and they put them under contracts, and and uh, you know made made a nice profit. So that was how that was kind of Universal was the last dying gasp, I would guess you'd say of the of the contract system, and uh, and there I was, (laughs) and I lasted uh, five and a half years. I appeared in tons of television, and at the end of that time, uh, the reason my contract there ended was that the entire program ceased to oh. exist. They had decided at, one, at that point that, that they weren't going to keep running the, the talent program. So <laughs> I was there at the end.
0: And when you were doing this, was stage work at the back of your mind or were you thinking, no, I do want to do movies? and TV? Oh,
2: always, 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 Charles. I, yes, it was at the back of my mind. It was in the front of my mind. Um, at that point in LA, and we're going way back in time now, uh, I was, uh, I guess you, you'd say that the, the, theater, the theater scene in LA was not anything like it is now. And, uh, uh, you know, it, it, it still to this day is, is a movie town, it's, a, it's, it's the television and film industry town. And so theater tends to take a back seat. So at that point, there wasn't much opportunity. But every chance I got, I would audition for things that were happening, happening down at the uh, music center in Los Angeles. They had a great, great theater there, the Amundsen Theater, the Mark Taper Forum. And, um, and lots of, lots of rep companies would come through LA. Of course, I was under contract at that point, so I wasn't able to, to go off and do things, but um, I just, I just, it just occurred to me, I was, I was allowed a little leave of absence to go and do a play with Eva Marie Saint, great old, old play, a wonderful old comedy. And uh, John McMartin was oh. Eva Marie Saint's husband. And I, I was just in heaven because I had seen Follies uh, in, in L.A. When, when the road company came into L.A. Um, I still hadn't been to New York, really. Yeah. Uh, and um, I was such a fan of John McMartin, so it was it was a dream come true to work with him in that show. Uh, Charlotte Moore, um, John's longtime companion, uh, best friend in the world, and that's where we all met.
0: Yeah, so in what ways would you find that the screen acting you were doing during this time would be different than the stage acting you would later do?
2: Oh, sure, well, um, obviously because the camera is so close, yeah. Uh, you, you have to, you have to kind of, uh, modulate your performance so that it's not, it's not too huge. Um, and, uh, I, I just love the experience of working in front of a camera. It's, 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 um, you kind of feel like it's, 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 a, it's a, it's one of your, your friends there, you know, who's, yeah. who's kind of peeking in to to pick up subtle, subtle things that are going on inside your, your head.
0: <laughs> so then when did you ultimately decide to move to New York and how did that
2: happen? Yeah. So like I said, I, uh, I'd been at Universal for the five and a half years. And I, I still, um, you know, once I, once I left the program, I was in LA for about, about three and a half years more, uh, four years more. And, uh, and I just decided that I really wanted to give New York a shot. Uh, I wasn't singing. I was studying voice, but I hadn't been singing. There there was no opportunity to do musicals in LA, virtually none. Uh, And um, I remember sitting at home watching the Tonys that year and Mandy Patinkin in Sunday in the Park with George. Uh, And I thought, I've got to be I've got to at least give myself a chance to be up for, you know, be up in that, in that world because I love the theater so much and I love musicals so much. And uh, I, I just thought there's, there might be a place for me. So I came to New York. Uh, I was cast immediately, literally 10 days after I got here to New York, um, cast in La Bohème with Linda Ronstadt uh, playing Mimi. It, it was a brand new English language translation of La Boheme and we did it at the public theater. Joe Papp produced it, Wilfred Leach directed it. Um, again, I felt like I'd died and gone to heaven. It was just a great experience. And within a couple of months, I was in Sunday in the Park with George on Broadway, um, understudying the part that Mandy had played originally and playing the part of the soldier. So it was it was a, quite a whirlwind. It, it, things happened very fast uh, for me when I got to New York.
0: So I, I do want to ask about Wilfred Leach because I know that he's someone that you would work with a lot throughout
2: your career. He gave me my start in New York. He directed that La Boheme. Um, he took a chance on this kid who came into town who no one knew. I literally had just landed in New York and he said, uh, you're hired. And there I was, you know, in a rehearsal hall at the Public Theater with with, with Linda Rostedt, who was a hero of mine. I was such a fan of hers from her pop days. Um, and uh, so there I was singing opposite her on a stage in New York. It was pretty thrilling, I have to tell you. Um, and Wilford then, we, we uh, were in production, we were doing La Boheme, And he said, let's go have a drink one night after the show. I said, great. And we went out and he said, have you ever heard of this guy, uh, Rupert Holmes? He wrote the Pina Colada song. I said, yes. He said, well, he's written a musical. It's called The Mystery of Edwin Drew based on a Dickens book. And I think he'd be perfect for the uh, opium addicted choir master. (laughs) I I wonder what he sees in me. Um, But of course, it was a great, great role and a great opportunity. Um, and I owe it all to Wilfred Wilfred was an enormous, enormous factor in my life and in my career. And, uh, I, I bless his, bless his soul and his heart. He, uh, he passed away some years ago, but, um, I I think of him all the time because he gave me my start.
0: Yeah. And did you enjoy the operatic style of La Bowen, of singing?
2: I loved it. Although I must say that it was a, I would say it was a, it was a pop version of, of La Boheme. In that, um, you know, because Linda Ronstadt, of course, is a, yeah. a great pop voice. And the whole idea that Wilford had about, he had he had, had a great success with Pirates of Penzance, of course, um, starring Linda and Kevin Klein. And uh, and George Rose, who was in Drude as well, and and he had he just loved the idea of kind of bringing bringing music forward into the into the 20th century at that time. Um, and one of the ways he he saw it happening was through kind of making things more accessible, pop wise, pop. You know, the orchestra was a much pared down version of of an orchestra for La Boheme. I think we had we had maybe. 10 pieces in the orchestra and no violins. Um, uh, Michael Starabin was our brilliant orchestrator. And he worked with this little band and made it sound like Puccini. And it was pretty great.
0: Yeah. And I do want to ask if you have any memories of Joe Papp, because
2: of course he was... I do very well. I, I, I have many memories of Joe. Uh, he was He was always present um he uh, wilford was his artistic director at the public he was he was his right hand and so joe had great of course confidence in wilford wilford knew what he was doing he was a brilliant director and brilliant man but joe would always be around he couldn't keep his hands out of things you know he wanted to be he wanted to be there all the time and um he would sit in the back of the theater uh while we were in rehearsal uh during texts of course and uh uh hold court and tell stories about the theater and shakespeare and um it was a pretty special time yeah
0: and then how did your audition for sunday happen Out of this?
2: it was it was a direct result of my doing la boheme um it's amazing how one you know it's like dominoes one thing leads to another it, it uh I was doing La Boheme and um, Michael Starabin, who orchestrated both Slam and Sunday in the Park, said, Mr. is coming to the show tonight. And uh, I said, why did you tell me that? (laughs) Uh, And I was a nervous wreck during the show, a complete nervous wreck, uh, terribly self-conscious. I couldn't stop thinking about my hero, the the hero of heroes, Stephen Sondheim being in the, being in the theater that night, watching me perform, um, I, I was a mess. I was a basket case. And at the end of the show, uh, I, I got out of my costume and I went out into the green room and Michael Starobin was sitting there and I said, well, what did he think? And he said, oh, he couldn't make it tonight. <laughs> he sent me a note saying he, he'll come next week. So I had gone through this terrible kind of trial by fire, uh, this ordeal of worrying about everything I was doing and singing and acting and everything. And I realized it was all for nothing um, in that, you know, he wasn't there. So the following week when he said he's coming today, he's coming tonight or whatever it was, uh, I decided to just kind of take that with a grain of salt. So I I, uh, somehow convinced myself not to be not to be too worried about it.
0: Yeah. So you were mentioning that you understudied George in the show. Did you yeah. get to go on a lot or?
2: I never got to go on. Oh. Um, part of the reason I didn't was that I had a very short run with Sunday because I had already been asked to do drood in the park uh, in at the Delacorte in, in the summer season there. And so I think I went into... Sunday in the park in February, and I left at the end of May, maybe, to, to start rehearsals for Drood. So I never got a chance to go on, and it's one of the things that I have, you know, always regretted. Because yeah. um, um, I just so, so revered that score and I loved that show so much. Um, uh, but it wasn't meant to be.
0: Yeah. And what was it like to be performing in the park with Edwin Drew? Not Sunday in the Park, but the actual park.
2: Yeah, it was uh, it was magical. It really was. It was summertime in New York City. I literally had not uh, kind of settled into living in New York by that point. I I'd been working so much in the you know six or eight months that had transpired, maybe nine months by that point. Uh, and there I was, smack in the middle of Central Park, doing, doing this fantastic show. Rupert Holmes is just such a brilliant writer. And, and the entire production was, was beautiful and magical and great. And there I was in Central Park on the stage with a packed audience every night. Um, and the wind would blow and i i was i was playing john jasper as i said the demented choir master who uh figures or we think figured in in edwin Trude's demise but it, no one ever knows cuz he died uh, that is dickens died before he finished the the book but uh again a, a choir master and and you first see john jasper in his choir robes singing a song called A man could go quite mad and I remember standing there. Uh, there was a full moon over my shoulder, and the Delacorte, uh, the castle, Belvedere Castle, just over the set. You could see it with the the moon in the sky, and the wind came up, and my choir robes were kind of blowing in the wind as the as the orchestra struck the downbeat. And I thought, I, I don't think it gets better than this. Yeah. It was it was a pretty magical magical event magical time.
0: And can you remember when you were told that the show would be going to Broadway? Um,
2: I do. Uh, Joe Pap came backstage um, toward the end of our little run in in the summer there at the Delacorte, and he gathered the company. And there have been talk of it because we had great reviews and and people were loving the show. And he told us all that we were going to Broadway. Yeah. Um, I will never forget it. Never forget it.
0: And were there a lot of changes made between the Delacorte and Broadway or?
2: There were a lot of changes. Yeah. Good question. There were, there were many, many changes. We, we, uh, we put in a whole new opening number, uh, the show. When we first did a reading of the show before the Delacorte, we did a reading for an invited audience down at the public theater uh and the reading ran three and a half hours uh it really was topping three hours 45 minutes and that was just a reading so when you add all the elements and scene change and overture and you know entre act and all that stuff so rupert again is just his his prolific uh writing ability, we had a, we had a, 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 uh, an embarrassment of riches that had to be cut down. So even from the, even from the, the park to Broadway, it, it got trimmed and trimmed because it was already, I think even, even at the Delacorte, we were running close to maybe three hours. So, yeah. so things were cut. We had a whole new opening number. Um, that's, that's about it. As far as I remember,
0: so since you were involved with it from the very first first reading do you feel that you had a big hand in creating
2: the character I, I guess so I guess so yeah um yeah it's thrilling to be the first mm-hmm. actor to put his imprint on, on something uh of course you're you're trying just to do service to the to the piece as written and and yet I'm sure I'm sure I had an imprint on the show uh I'll tell you, I remember one member of our ensemble was someone by the name of Donna murphy oh. who who, from very early on, Wilford had encouraged the entire ensemble, the entire cast, to improvise uh, in between, you know, kind of working toward the the presentation of the play. And many of Donna's ad-libs, were in the show and have become part of the show itself. Uh, yeah. So it's, it's amazing how you, you can definitely have, you definitely have an imprint as yeah. an actor on a new show.
0: And what was it like to be working around the invention of the voting about the ending? Can you remember any sort of incidents with that?
2: I do. I, well, I remember how much fun it was and how much fun the audience had with it. And when, when Wilfred first said, you're gonna go out into the house and you're all gonna, and I thought, oh God, I, I, where's the fourth wall? I like the idea of the actor being on the stage and the audience being in the audience. And I'm not sure I'm comfortable with that. And uh, I quickly got over that because it was so much fun. The audience just loved interacting with the actors in the show. Uh, and, um and you really never knew from one night to the next who was going to be elected to play the, the lover, the murderer. Uh, and we had several. Different, we are we had a binder for a script book when we first did the reading at the public. And then and and we from the very get-go, it was going to be voted on by the audience. So we had we had a tabulated binder, and we would flip from one tab to the next as soon as the. The results came in the voting results and we'd know okay they're gonna sing this song and you'd better know if you have a part in it (laughs) um i was the only character in the play who even though he may not have been elected the murderer thought he did it because he was so hopped up on opium that he (laughs) that he thought he did it anyway so so jasper my character always got to sing A confession that's how that's how the whole um the voting block of the show to the end of the show started with jasper singing his confession and it was partly just rupert saying to the audience i fooled you again because the audience thought oh he got of course he got he was chosen the murderer he's he's the obvious choice but an audience never wants the obvious choice obviously right Mm so they um but anyway, so I would sing this old confession, very passionate and crazy, being such a crazy guy. And then uh, Jerry Dempsey, God bless his soul, uh, who played Dirtles, the, the town uh, constable, would come out and say, no, 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 Jasper. You, you think you did it. You're, you, were so, you were so drunk on opium that you, you know, you were, you were not in your right mind. You, you did not do it. It was, and then he would announce who it was that, that had been the murder, and then the murderer would be kind of chased out into the center of the town square, and they'd have to give their confession. So that was the that was the uh, the premise of that.
0: And were you actually voted the murder ever or? once?
2: Once one time, yeah, only once. Uh, like I said, the audience doesn't want the obvious; they want it. They want to choose the least least suspicious person. Yeah. So oftentimes it was. Patty Conner, who played Rosebud so beautifully, I might add, uh, who was the picture of innocence and perf- perfect, perfect manners and sweetness and light, she would be the murderer more often than not.
0: And I do want to ask you what it was like to work with her, but also George Rose and Betty Buckley and all those.
2: Yeah, well, like I said, they—they they were. Uh, I, I felt very. Very lucky just to be on stage with those people, they, the, the, just the talent involved with each of them, so unique and so, so brilliant. Um, uh, George Rose um, taught me so much just by watching, just by being able to observe this, this pro, this master of, of the theatre. Um, talk about leaving his imprint on a role. He played the chairman and the master of ceremonies for the entire evening. Uh, And half, I wouldn't say half of the script, but certainly many, many lines were a direct result of his interjecting an ad lib here or there. And Rupert saying, that is a keeper. Um, He was just brilliant, just brilliant.
0: Yeah. what can you remember about the night that you were nominated for a Tony
2: for this? The- uh, well, it was, it was such a thrill. Joe Papp handed me my, my uh, nomination and said, uh, yeah, of course, congratulations. And uh, uh, yeah, we were down at the public theater. The public had a, a little gathering, a little party when the Tony uh, nominations were announced. And, uh, we all assembled down there and, uh, uh, it was, it was great. I, I cannot believe how long ago it it is now, Charles, but it was a great experience. And I will say, because I, I know you asked me about Betty Buckley. Um, I, I've sung with a lot of great singers in my day, but I have never felt the literally my, my entire cellular structure. Uh, kind of coming alive, standing next to Betty and singing a duet with her, we sang uh, two kinsmen together uh, from the show, and it it was a it was a a fantastic, delicious experience to sing opposite her. Um, we're friends to this day, and uh, she's just she's just a remarkable talent,
0: so I also want to ask about you stayed in this show for I think the entire run and of course you're the master of staying in shows for a long time but how do you (laughs) how do you sort of keep a role fresh when you are staying in for so long
2: right i mean that's the challenge of course um i i don't know i think there's something about the action that keeps you wanting to go out there every night and find something new to tell the audience you know the the role of being a storyteller on stage for the actor is is a it's a pretty potent uh drug it's it's a it's a fantastic experience to be able to do it and and um, i am i guess i'm just i'm good at long runs in part because I I, I I don't know i wish I knew the answer to that charles and why why i'm so well suited to it i think i have good endurance i'm I'm pretty, pretty strong. And, uh, and I love the challenge of going out there and playing as if Um, that's what you do every night, whether you're in a long run or a short one, but um, I never grow tired of that.
0: Yeah. So I believe that um, anything goes followed almost immediately after Edwin Drude. So how did that begin for you?
2: I'm trying to remember. Doesn't matter what year, does it? I don't wanna, <laughs> I'm already old enough. I don't have to remember how <laughs> how long ago that was. But um, yeah, I, I, uh, I was so, so thrilled to do something so different from Drood yeah. uh, when the script came along for Anything Goes. And I thought this is, this is something I would so love to do. And I thought I had a knack at uh, that, that period. I thought that was a good period of time for me, and then to be on stage with the likes of Patti Lupone, um, Bill McCutcheon, uh, Tony Heald, Anthony Heald—it was—it was really a great experience. Again, yeah. terrific experience.
0: And what was it like to work with Jerry Zachs, who was, of course, one of the great directors?
2: One of the great, one of the great directors, and he—he he taught me so much. I learned so much about comedy about um about the discipline of acting about um you know knowing knowing your stuff and showing up for rehearsal ready to go yeah. he was uh he was he he has great great technique as a director and he also uh has very high standards for how he wants his cast to to be ready to go and 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 work and it's just a great great work ethic that I learned from him yeah
0: and I do want to ask because you were mentioning earlier you've done a few shows where you've played sort of period roles and what yeah. do you think it is about your acting style that lends itself to that
2: I wish I knew the answer I think I think my looks are partly uh the, you know obviously an actor's looks to determine where they're going to be where they're going to be cast um and uh, um you know, that's just a fact. Um, and so I, I think, I think that's, that has a lot to do with the fact that I've been well-suited to certain periods, let's yeah. say. Yeah.
0: And what was it like to be playing opposite Patty LuPone?
2: Uh, we never stopped laughing the entire year and a half. We were, we were together on that stage at the Beaumont at Lincoln center for, I think it was a year and a half. And, uh, we, we laughed, we went to dinner every two-show day together. Uh, we, we were just great friends and um, still are. And uh, just, it was just a great, great, uh, it was a romp. It was so much fun. I've never had more fun in a show than I did during that time in Anything Goes.
0: Yeah. And then you would also um, reunite with this cast years later to do a? a
2: re- That's correct yes uh we we did a 10-year uh kind of anniversary reboot we did one night only uh of the show right back on stage at the beaumont and uh that was a great great uh treat and a gift to be able to kind of revisit our past glory days there great
0: and how did you end up going to london with
2: this how did that Well, Jerry Zachs uh, was having trouble finding somebody to play Billy Crocker in London, and uh, he'd, he'd come back from casting. he'd cast the show except for Billy. And he said to me, "Would you ever be interested in going over to start the show, to, you know, to be, to be in the first uh, company?" And I said, "I would love it." Um, it didn't take much uh, prodding on his part. I was, I was thrilled. Um, so there I was, found myself in London, um, Elaine Page playing Reno Sweeney. She was so good to me. She and Tim Rice were together at the time and they took me, uh, they produced the show together and they took me under their wing. I was the only American in the cast. So I was, you know, a stranger in a strange land in a way. They, they made it their, their life's work to include me in every social occasion that they had uh i was i was wined and dined by the royal family i was uh, it was it was the most amazing experience we Mm -hmm. went we went to the finals at wimbledon um sat center court you know i i I can't tell you charles it was uh it was a great experience
0: and what do you find different about performing in London about audiences or
2: it's It's remarkably the same. Uh, you know, uh, I think Americans are much more voluble. They're much more kind of uh, expressive, I think, you know that the the British reserve is a fact. Um, here in America, when you finish a show, people will rush up to you and say, that was fantastic." And in England they'll say, "Well done well done uh, and you get to you quickly come to realize that that's that's a compliment and you better take it don't uh, you know don't quibble with with words they're you know they're 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 exact and they let you know if they appreciate your work well done. Yeah.
0: And when you do get asked to do a revival, do you try to see other? versions of the show
2: or not to, how do you? Uh, no, I mean, in general, I don't find myself wanting to go back and look at other source material other than, I mean, I, I always love the idea of, of filling out your, you know, the one of the great things about the theater be, having a life in the theater is the, uh, education that you get as a, as a bonus. Um, and, and part of that education is in the research that you might do to, to uh, flesh out a character, um, extra reading and um, that kind of thing. But I, I wanted to try to put my own stamp on it, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah.
0: And what has been some of the most interesting research that you've done for any character?
2: Oh, that's a great question. Well, when I, when I took over Phantom, I, I of course went back to the original source, uh, uh, the book itself and uh, found that fascinating and loved it so much. Of course, I looked at the at the Lon Chaney. So I'm, I'm making a liar of myself and telling you that I, I did look at, at things like that because I wanted to get a sense of, of what and where Hal drew his, Hal Prince drew his, his inspiration for things from. And of course, Andrew. Uh, and, uh, so that was a, that was a part of the, the process for me, uh, and and an interesting one. Yeah.
0: So I want to go back in time a little bit to ask you about Follies in concert. Oh, yeah. So yeah, I think this was during Edwin Drude, you did this
2: or? Yes, that's exactly right. Uh, I had, I was in, I was in Sunday in the park with George. And I was sitting backstage talking to James Lapine just before we started the understudy rehearsal for Sunday. And he was talking about the Follies thing. James was not involved in the Follies uh, in concert, but he, of course, being very close with Steve, was talking about the process of it. And I said to James, very cheeky of me, I said, have they cast the young guys yet? (laughs) And he looked at me and he said, that's a really good idea. Um, And the next thing I knew, I had a phone call that they wanted me to, to do Follies. So it literally, I, I don't know. I I like to think that it was because I opened my big mouth and, and said, what about me? (laughs) But it's certainly, I certainly owe James the Pine uh, a debt of gratitude for that, for that moment. It was a thrill beyond description when the orchestra struck up the downbeat of that fantastic overture of Follies at the Avery Fisher Hall and now the Geffen Hall. And the roar of, I don't know how many, 3,500 people in that theater, the roar of approval of Anticipation of a show that everyone had loved, yours truly included. Um, I was a kid in in high school when the cast album made its way to to our little band room uh, where I was in the orchestra, <laughs> and people were playing that cast album in the uh, on uh, you know between classes in the in the orchestra room and in the in the choral room, and I thought, what is that? That is the most thrilling uh, cast album I've ever heard. And and uh, I never forgot it. So there I was suddenly doing it in New York in this, what was going to become a kind of landmark uh, concert of this show. Uh, and on that stage with hearing that roar of that audience, I, I can tell you that was a high point.
0: Yeah. And what was it like to be working with Condon Green and Mandy Patinkin and all these other people?
2: Just great. Uh, what can I say? Uh, you know, again, I It was. I think it was, was it October of that year? I think it was something like that. It was either, yeah, I think it was September or October of, of that year. I think I'd been in New York maybe uh, – Thirteen months, and I, you know, and I'm having this kind of experience. It, it, I I just don't know what to say. It was thrilling from the minute we sat in rehearsal hall, and and Sondheim, you know, would would sit down at the keyboard and play something uh, for a rehearsal that was happening, and uh, Barbara Cook would sing in Buddy's eyes and uh, Stretch. Yeah. It was just great. It was, it was a, unforgettable.
0: And did you know at the time that it would become the sort of iconic version of Follies?
2: I had a pretty good sense of it. I mean, you start to kind of develop a sense for these things. It certainly seemed, it seemed important. Uh, there was not only just the, the assemblage of, of talent, of the people, the names that you mentioned and, uh, and the ones I've mentioned, but, There were there were also cameras there 24 seven because they were they were documenting this for a for a documentary. And so you knew you knew something was was big and it's the New York Philharmonic is your orchestra. Um, It's going to be an event, that's for sure.
0: So the next thing that you did on Broadway was The Secret Garden as as a replacement. So what was it like to be coming into this as a replacement? Did you get a lot of direction or how did
2: that work? Oh, I I got a lot of direction. Sure. Uh, I was asked to do it. um, And little did I know how hugely impactful it would be on my life because it it was the perfect that what I said before about the theater being a great uh, a great educator. You know, it teaches you so much um, if you're open to it. And uh, how can you not be as an actor? You want to you want to soak it all up. Um, the theme of that show uh, about awakening the secret garden within all of us, allowing your heart to open up again. Uh, to me was a great metaphor for my own personal struggles that were going on at the time. And it taught me, it taught me an enormous, uh, amount of, of, uh, what, what should I say? Grace, uh, about accepting things and about being able to, to learn and grow from, from your life experience that I, I will never forget. And the, and. And then to say that on top that on top of that the other layer of it was this gorgeous music this beautiful score by Lucy Simon and uh, uh, just what a beautiful beautiful set uh, costumes and set design um, uh, by Heidi Landisman it, it it was uh, extraordinary. And Susan Schulman was our director, and she, and yes, I got lots of direction, and and gratefully so.
0: And uh, I do want to ask you about um, Rebecca Luker, who I know you worked with several times.
2: Well, you know, uh, it's it's one of my great uh, great losses, that it, uh, and one of all of our great losses that Becca passed away. Uh, most people will know that she she passed away from ALS this year, and uh, she was. Um, just luminous and gorgeous and the voice of god <laughs> was given to her the most beautiful voice ever uh and we we were together in that show for a long time uh, i took over for mandy so mandy patinkin had left three months after the show started so i i ran with that show for the rest of its run um uh like you said i'm the the long run king um but but it was just a great experience to be able to sing that music with rebecca every night and we became very good friends and have over the years performed many many times together and uh it's it's certainly one of the high points of my career is singing with rebecca i miss her every day
0: she was And I also want to ask about the children in the cast. They say never work with children or animals, but (laughs) I
2: guess. Well, they were extraordinary. Um, uh, Daisy Egan was, of course, the Tony-winning performance of that year. Um, She was a remarkable actor, is a remarkable actor. And uh, when you sat down on the stage and looked at that actor, she was looking you right back square in the eyes and was the intelligence that you saw there, the, the heart, the, the just wisdom beyond her years. It was quite, quite remarkable. A little scary, in fact, that someone <laughs> that young could be that together and that, that gifted, but she truly was. That was a, that was a remarkable experience.
0: So one of the, I think the next show you did on Broadway after this was She Loves Me. So did you like sort of playing not the leading man, but the villain instead?
2: I loved it. I loved it. I wanted to play George. I really, really wanted to play George. Um, and and when I went in for it, uh, I, th- I think I must have said something to Scott Ellis about it. Uh, because he said to me i remember him saying to me i don't believe that you would be uh someone like you again going back to looks right he said i don't think i i don't think someone like you would be so lonely that he would be writing to a to a newspaper column to try to to find somebody to go out with that was his con his conception and and i get it uh and he said but how about Kodai, he's a great character. And I, of course, was, was thrilled to play Kodai. Um, in high school, I had played Kodai. Oh, really? And George on alternate nights. the the Our director was so crazy to think <laughs> that he was gonna double cast the entire production of She Loves Me. It was my senior year in high school. And he double cast the show. And on alternate nights, we would play different characters. And so I played Kodai one night and George the next and alternated back and forth for the two weeks. I think it was a two week run. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, that's my, that's my memory of that. But to play Kodai on Broadway? Yeah, pretty great, yeah.
0: And what do you think makes a successful revival of a musical?
2: Uh, well, certainly it starts with love, I think in a way. You have to really love the original material and you have to be um, that's that's how that's how any theater becomes memorable is is when you have that kind of energy from all sides coming together to make something work. And I think that that's that's truly the key to to the success of a revival. It's really not that much different than the first time you do a show, except that, you know, certain things work because you it's been proven out over time. Um, I think it's one of the most perfect Broadway musicals. And I think the book itself has a lot to do with that. Obviously the music is key and uh, there's no one better than Jerry Bach uh, and Sheldon Harnick, but but the book was also so, so solid.
0: Yeah, and I agree, It's, it's my favorite musical.
2: Is it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're not alone.
0: So I want to take a quick detour from your stage work to ask about some of the voiceover work that you've done. So yeah. what sort of appeals to you about that?
2: Well, it's just, it's it's great because it's, it's a, um, it's doing the same kind of thing that you do as an actor on a stage or even in front of a camera. But um, in some ways it's easier, I'd have to say, it's easier. You don't have to worry about how you look, you can, you can kind of, you know, fall into the recording studio and, and not worry about what, what you look like. And, um, I just enjoy, again, I enjoy the, the process of telling stories. Um, uh-huh. but there's just something wonderful about, about knowing that your voice is going to be there on a, on an animated film for all time and that, you know, your children and your grandchildren and, their children will be able to see it. There's something great about that.
0: So you did um, Kiss of the Spider Woman on Broadway. You came into Kiss of the Spider Woman. So I want to ask you sort of because of this, what has been the most challenging role that you've ever had to take on?
2: Well, I I would say certainly playing Molina in Kiss of the Spider Woman was a challenge. Um, It was a vigorous, rigorous, uh, demanding role. Um, you know, Valentine and, and Molina never leave the stage for the entire run of that. Um, they're not always in S in, you know, the spotlight, not always center stage because the spider woman and, and her and Molina's dream of her that takes over the show from time to time, but, but it, it was, it was a, an exhausting and wonderfully rewarding experience playing that part. Uh. And, of course, Phantom, I would have to say, was um, definitely a high point in many, many ways. Uh, and and also hugely challenging from a stamina standpoint. Yeah. Uh, and people people always point out the fact that the Phantom is only on stage for a total of 35 minutes, 34 minutes, somebody mm-hmm. said they timed it once. Um, but I will tell you that the level of intensity, uh, emotional intensity that this guy carries around with him, uh, is such that you can never do that show. Uh, not that I would ever want to, but you can never do that show on kind of a half batteries. You know, you have to, you have got to give that show everything that it deserves. And vocally, it's very challenging. And uh, physically, you're climbing a lot of ladders backstage. And, you know, being lowered down through the you know the gods from up up above, and uh at one point there was a trapdoor involved where you fell through the stage uh it's it was a it was a rigorous rigorous run, but uh certainly something I love
0: And how do you uh keep up your energy physically and emotionally during
2: well, you don't there isn't much room for much else when you're done. I'll tell you that when you're in an eight in eight shows a week uh that's that's your focus of the week everything is focused around that performance and around the time that you need to get there to start your preparation uh with phantom uh i was there before anyone arrived in the cast and i was there after everyone left because you got that makeup job that requires both the makeup going on and then the makeup coming off so uh you know it's 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 an all-consuming experience and then the actual keeping up the the energy and the stamina and everything i think it's just partly again my love for doing what i do and love for love for performing i think i i uh somewhere in in there there's a a gene that 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 makes me need to get out on a stage and perform um I, maybe i didn't get enough love as a child i don't know but yeah. <laughs>
0: And I did want, I was curious, I think you were working with Vanessa Williams in Kiss of the Spider Woman and Brian Stokes Mitchell, is that?
2: Yes, yes, it was It was such a thrill. When we went in, when well, when I went in, let's put it that way, I went in, Brian Stokes Mitchell had gone in two months before me. He had taken over uh, from Anthony Crivello. And then I went in, and Took over, and then Vanessa came in th- three weeks after me. I'm tr- yes, yes, because I was in for Cheetah Rivera's last three weeks. Oh, and, and at the end of the third week of my performing on Broadway in Kiss of the Spider Woman, I was hit by a car riding my bike in the park. Oh, and I broke three ribs, separated my shoulder. Uh, i lay there on the pavement it was the day of vanessa williams put in rehearsal Uh, she was due to go on for the first time the following monday so it was a friday morning and of course i'll never forget it um i i ended up going to the hospital i left the hospital an hour or so later with my arm in a sling because of the separated shoulder and uh broken ribs and i was on some kind of painkiller that made me think that i was just going to go on in the show that night (laughs) and i said to i got to the rehearsal for vanessa for her put in and the put in by the way for those who don't know is is you run the entire show from beginning to end for the actor who is coming into the show and that was vanessa i was an old hand (laughs) in three weeks Uh, but vanessa was coming in so we would we did the entire show that afternoon and i was on such painkillers that i thought i'm going to be fine i'm going on tonight and the stage manager looked at me and said well we'll see and we got through we got through the first act of the rehearsal and the stage manager came up on the stage and he said you are turning green your face is green we're we've called the doctor they're going to come and pick you up and take you <laughs> to, to to for further tests and and uh, x-rays and stuff. And that's what happened. I left the rehearsal, uh, and I went over to NYU and, uh, and the doctor said, you're not going on tonight. You're not going on tomorrow night. You're not going on next week. He said, you'll be lucky if you're back in the show in a month. Um, I was back in the show in three weeks. Wow. Um, again, my arm was in a sling for a part of that run. Um, but then I started to heal, uh, of course. Uh, the hardest part was the broken ribs, because I don't know if you've ever had an, God forbid you should ever have that Charles, but, uh, a broken rib makes it extremely hard to breathe. And one thing you need to do in the theater is breathe, (laughs) especially singing. And every time I took a deep breath, one of those three broken ribs would make me know that I was not healed yet. Uh, so it was, it was a long, slow climb back, but, um. But that's the theater, you know. You, you can't you can't keep an actor away from the theater if 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 they truly love it. That was my case.
0: Yeah. And I do want to ask if, as a replacement, you were working with Hal Prince and Candor and
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. First of all, John Candor graciously uh, had me come to his house and rehearse. Uh, he, we sat in his music studio, and he played through the score with me and uh, Ted Sperling was our music director, and the three of us uh, worked together. They taught me the show. Um, absolutely, John was involved all the way along the way. And um, yeah, and of course Hal Prince was there. Uh, he he uh, wisely lets you kind of settle into the role, and then he comes in and, and works with you after you've kind of gotten gotten your sea legs. You know, um, that was the same case with Phantom. When I went into Phantom, he said, "I'm going to let you. I'm going to let you learn the show, and then I'll come in and we'll work on the fine tuning after the fact." And so that's what that's what we did.
0: So, um, how did doing Mac and Mabel in London come about for you?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was doing Kiss of the Spider Woman. Uh, oddly enough, you can't find a more stark contrast between two characters than Molina and Mac Senate. But uh, John Wilner, who was the producer of Mac and Mabel, had been working with Jerry Herman to to get this production together for years, uh, came to see me in Kiss of the Spider Woman and said, that's our Mac. So he called Jerry and I, again, uh, I was in the middle of the run of Kiss and they said, Jerry wants to have lunch with you. And I said, oh, great. Um, yeah, we can do it any show, but any day, but not a matinee day. And they said, no, Jerry's in L.A. and and you're going to have to fly out on your day off. But but I think it's worth it. And I said, uh, you bet it is. So I flew out to to L.A. and uh, had lunch with Jerry at his house and stayed there at his house that night because um, Paul Carrison, who was the British director, was coming in from London. And we all we all met and went to dinner, and then I stood at the piano and Jerry played uh, for me, and I sang "I Won't Send Roses," and uh, I guess I guess I got the job that night. I I I I didn't know that it was an audition, but I guess it was in, in some way. I don't think you ever stop auditioning, that's for sure. But yeah. um, I got on the plane the next day and and went back to New York, and and uh, they called and said we're gonna make this happen. So there I was in London, I found myself in London again for the second time uh, in a number of years, I guess it was five, six years later. And uh, it was great. It was great giving that show, which I think one of Jerry Herman's greatest scores. And unfortunately it didn't quite work. Um, I don't know if the show will ever work because it's it's, it's a problematic book. The book, again, like I said, when Joe Masteroff, uh, people, people cannot underestimate the strength of, of a good writer. Um, yeah. um, in the case of Michael Stewart, who wrote the book for Mac and Mabel, the problem is that he died. So there was no, you can't, you can't fiddle with it anymore. So unfortunately, that's, that's, that's a part of the legacy of Mac and Mabel, but what a great score. What a great mm-hmm. score
0: and to be collaborating as closely with someone as you did with Caroline O'Connor as you must have because it's not it's not a two person show but it almost is um and what was your collaboration like
2: uh it was uh, what can i say we i wouldn't say that we were the best of friends we we i think we're both we're both irish and we both have irish tempers i think and and I and I think in some ways it was the it was the the conflict of the characters sometimes bled over into the conflict of the actors involved. Oh. And I think, you know, I think that I think that there was there was maybe a. A certain level of of uh, emotion that was kind of charged in the air to begin with that may have may have been a part of that kind of overlap. Um, but. Um, you know you can't ever, you can't be in the theater uh, as long as I've been and not have have your moments every once in a while where, where maybe you don't you don't get along with, with your with your uh, your partner as much as you'd like to. But we we've seen each other since and we're and uh, we're able to laugh about it and uh, uh, all is well.
0: So a show that you did um, out of town, which didn't come to Broadway, was Time and Again. So also with Rebecca Luker. So I would love to ask you first just what this was about, since people might not know.
2: Yeah, well, it was based on a Jack Finney book uh, called Time and Again, uh, about a guy who gets involved in a in a government project to travel through time, and he is successfully travels back to New York City uh in the 1890s uh 1880s 1890s uh, once again i'm back in that era uh which i've been in many times and uh but i i both the modern era and that era uh because i was the time traveler um and he falls in love with the rebecca Luker character julia um and uh, is torn between these two worlds and his his girlfriend in uh the modern times was played by Jessica Molaski my good dear friend Jessica and uh um i was pretty lucky to be to be to be the Jessica Molaski Rebecca Luker sandwich <laughs> <laughs> i was pretty lucky to play with uh with both of those extraordinary people but um it was supposed to be a pre-broadway run and it ended up just being a run
0: so one yeah. of the the next things you did is one of my favorite cast albums which was as thousands Cheer" at the Drama yeah. department so yeah i would love to ask you about next show it
2: was it it was like a, a gift out of the blue um kathleen marsha was the director no it uh, was a choreographer and uh um uh uh chris uh Ashton. chris Chris Ashley. Yes. I'm so sorry. It's a senior moment here. Chris Ashley was our director and we had such a terrific cast. Uh, We had a great time. We had a great time. Uh, and it was just this sweet, sweet little production at the Greenwich house down in the village, a little tiny theater with, with just, you know, uh, some chairs set up in the audience for, for the audience to sit. And, um, what, what a what a really terrific production that was of course the great irving berlin review from 1934 i think and um some great great songs uh let's have another cup of coffee the funnies bd wong had a great song about the funnies reading the funny papers oh we had a great time we had a great time it was a classy smart show done on a dime the drama department was a new up-and-coming uh, theater organization in New York, and they didn't have a lot of money, but, boy, did they make it look good.
0: Yeah. So I would love to ask next about Phantom, which we've mentioned a few times, and I think everyone... Yeah,
2: talk about it. epic.
0: <laughs> yeah. And I'm sure everyone knows, but you were the longest-running Phantom, which was a clue on Jeopardy. Uh, I know you must know <laughs> Yeah, that.
2: how about that? that? That was a surprise. That, yeah. was, that came totally out of the blue, and what a, what a lovely little thing to happen.
0: Yes. Yeah. So how did the role first start for you, first?
2: Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to remember what I was doing at the time. I don't, I don't think I was in a show at the time, but I, I got a call, uh, and Hugh Pinero, who had been doing The Phantom, was leaving to do a show, Martin Gare, that was going to be an out-of-town tryout and uh he was leaving and they didn't have a phantom and and uh I went in and sang and got the job and uh I I knew when I I knew when I got the 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 score for the song that I could play that part I just I had seen it of course I'd seen it when we were in we were doing anything goes at Lincoln Center when Phantom open on Broadway, so I of course had gone down to see it because everybody was talking about it, and um, and little did I know that ten years later, ten years later, uh, maybe eleven years later, ten and a half years later, I would be playing the part myself. Um, it was something that never occurred to me, and I was I was thrilled to have the opportunity. Mostly, if, well not mostly, but certainly one of the one of the reasons was i could finally tell people who would ask me what shows have you been in they would always say have you ever done phantom <laughs> you know so finally i could say yes as a matter of fact i have <laughs> uh so anyway but it was it was a great experience
0: and how did you sort of make the role your own after
2: yeah well i i don't know that's a that's a good question charles i i I kind of want to think that when I start rehearsing for something that I, I'm going to stay open to what works with what's already been done before me, but also to, to in a way, kind of trick myself into thinking that I'm playing this part. This is my part now that, you know, the idea that, that you're creating it for yourself. So that even though you haven't had the luxury of the long rehearsal period where people are discovering and saying, oh, no, that doesn't work. Let's try it a different way. You don't have that opportunity when you go into a show. But I certainly was determined to try to invent enough of it for myself in my head before I even started rehearsing so that so that I felt like I really knew who this guy was and what, what it was that motivated him on his demented path to you know kidnapping this this woman and taking her down to his lair and trying to make her his 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 muse whether she wanted to or not um you know i i just i i just wanted to believe and i guess i i convinced myself enough that it seemed to work that that the role was mine now and i was gonna i was gonna breathe the life of howard into the into the phantom
0: so a sort of um crazy story that I would love to ask you about is your performing for Donald Trump during this, yeah. this run
2: yeah well without getting into politics at all this was of yeah. course was uh, was uh, in nineteen ninety No, this was more like two thousand and two thousand and three maybe two thousand five I'm not sure when this happened long before he decided he was going to run for president and uh. uh he came to see the show and and wanted wanted me to come down to Mar-a-Lago and sing for the club. Uh for the members of the club for uh, you know, a gala dinner. And uh he flew me down there and uh I sang. I sang at the in the Trump ballroom there at uh Mar-a-Lago. And um if I'd known then what I know now was gonna happen to politics in you know, in our country, I would I would have thought twice about it, but anyway, that's just my own opinion, but.
0: So I do want to ask um, what it's like to be performing with all that makeup and the mask, which of course now we're used to, but
2: then. Yeah. You know what, you you forget very quickly that you have that all that stuff on you. Mm-hmm. Uh, except that, uh, this is so gross, but it's you, of course you sweat. And so as the evening goes along, <laughs> And the more intense the show becomes, and the more intense all the activity is—climbing ladders and all the <laughs> dropping through trapdoors and, and singing at the top of your lungs and all that crazy stuff—is uh, it—it starts to get kind of soggy. So you're aware of that, uh, disgusting though that may be. But but mostly you're not—you're not really. It's because it moves with your face. It's it's a it's a um, it's a, a wonderful wonderful space age substance, whatever that, that foam is, it's just a soft foam that, that is, has, has been molded to contour to your face. You know, they, they, they do a life mask of you before you take over the role so that they can fit the, the makeup they pour the makeup to fit your face. So, so it fits, it fits your face perfectly. And, um, it, uh, y- you forget it's there. Um, you're, you're always aware of of how vigorous and how much uh, exertion is involved in, in the playing of the show. Yeah. So, uh, you know, that's just a factor. Uh, that's a fact, but um, yeah.
0: So I, I know I asked you about long runs before, but when you are doing something for seven years, do you ever sort of get sick of it or either the show?
2: Or... Oh, sure. You know, I, I won't lie. There are nights where you think, I. I can't, I can't go on. I can't, I can't. You sit in your dressing room some nights and you think, how am I gonna do this? But, but that's the amazing thing about, about life and live theater is that you start to, you start the process. That's how you do it. You do it one step at a time, just like anything in life, right? How am I gonna, how am I gonna learn how to speak Italian, right? Well, you start with day one. You start with learning how to say hello. And you know uh good day, and thank you, right and that's the, you start with the makeup you sit you sit you well, you warm up first, of course, you do a little warm up in your dressing room and then you sit in the chair and your makeup starts, and you start to see the process occurring uh transforming to this guy um you get a very clear visceral sense of the pain that this man feels because of the of his his afflictions, physical afflictions that he's beset with and you start to you start to feel that happening and then curiously enough, you hear the orchestra tuning up and you hear uh, the audience, the sound of the audience out there before the, the curtain goes up and you know there's a whole audience sitting out there waiting to see this. And if you're at all conscious of your uh, and conscientious of your work and the and the craft that you've been uh blessed to be a part of you somehow start to put it together and and uh it's remarkable to me how you you can do that as many times as i did i will i will say the only thing i want to be sure that you're clear about and i know you're clear about this charles because you're very well uh researched is that it wasn't a year run it was a three run followed by a yeah. break of a couple yeah. years, a year and a half. And then I went back and did another three and a half. So I don't know if I would have lasted if it was all seven years. I think I would have gone crazy. Yeah. It was crazy enough to do it as long as I did, but
0: and I do want to ask about your memories of I believe you did the twentieth anniversary year and what that was like.
2: Yeah. Um, yeah. Well we had we had a couple a couple big events. We did uh when when Phantom past Cats as the longest running show in the history of Broadway. We had a very special gala evening and all the Phantoms came back uh, and were in the audience. All the Christines who had played it. And of course, Andrew Lloyd Webber and everyone involved, Cameron McIntosh and Hal Prince, of course. And uh, they were all there in the audience. Um, I don't recall ever being as nervous (laughs) And I think, curiously enough, the thing that made me most nervous was knowing that all the other Phantoms were out there, you know, Uh, because I know they know how hard it is to do this role, that the challenges involved, um, physical and vocal. And I also know that, you know, any actor worth his salt has a pretty healthy ego. And, I, you know, I couldn't help but think, oh, they're sitting out there and they're judging me huh, what are they thinking about this? you know so uh yeah it was it was there was pressure, definite pressure to do that that night, um uh, but it was also thrilling
0: and did you find that um Andrew Lloyd Weber was around a lot even?
2: um not so much, not so much. he, like the phantom, would kind of appear and disappear <laughs> without telling anybody, and he would be at the- at his his pet peeve in 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 life, I think, as far as I've been able to gather, and certainly in the theater, is the sound. And so he would he would suddenly appear at the sound console uh, just before I started music of the night, and, or I don't know when, but he would be gone by by the time music of the night was over. Uh, so we didn't see him much. We didn't see him much. We saw him, of course, for the gala, and uh, we posed for pictures together. We had we we did a bunch of publicity stuff together, uh, which was great, but, um, that was about it.
0: Yeah. And the same question, I guess, about how Prince and Jillian Lynn were they around?
2: They were around a lot more. Um, you know, Hal, of course, living in, in New York as he does was as he did, God rest his soul was, was, uh, very much hands-on. Uh, he, this was his pride, this show. And so he, he was there a lot, and uh, I I had the great great pleasure of being invited to uh, weekends down in Florida at his house and um, to his house in in uh, New York several times. And uh, uh, he was he was just a again an, a, another huge huge part of my career. Uh, he cast me in in Kiss. He cast me in Phantom, and he cast me in what became Roadshow, but at that point was called, uh, uh, I, want to say, I want to say Wise Guys. I was in the very first reading of a thing called Wise Guys, where Steven Sondheim hadn't even written or finished the first act score. I think we just read a book. I just think we just read a book scene. Uh, John Weidman had written uh, the first act. I think it was the first act. And there was no music yet, and then uh, and I wasn't playing the part of Wilson, which I ended up playing in in uh, in Bounce. It was called Bounce when, when we did it. It was called Gold when we first read it. Yeah, we did a reading, uh, rehearse reading for for Steve and for Hal and everybody in New York, and then and then you know several months later it was called Bounce, and we went to New York uh, to uh, Chicago and did it uh, there, uh, and then in Washington. It was again. Uh, Hopefully pre-Broadway, and then it didn't. It didn't transfer. We didn't make it to Broadway, but um, a great experience again, um, being in on the on the ground level of a show that that is written by your hero and uh, directed by your hero and uh, and John Weidman. Of course, I had 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 a lovely experience with doing Anything Goes. He he and Tim Krauss rewrote the books for Anything Goes at Lincoln. Center. So we, we used to hang out a lot together. We, we, we hung out in London. When I went to London with Anything Goes, we, we hung out when we were in rehearsals and had dinners. And so anyway, long story short, uh, the theater gives you a lot of gifts that you never anticipated coming your way. And uh, certainly being a part of Bounce was one of them, even though it didn't ultimately bounce. <laughs> uh, it was still a great experience.
0: And I do think everyone will be curious to know what it's like to be in rehearsal with Sondheim.
2: When uh, Richard Kind and I, we both auditioned, we both went, you know, we were both at the callback for Bounce and we read together. We hadn't met, Uh, we read together and we went out into the hallway and he turned to me and he said, it's like Mount Rushmore in there. And, you know, I just cracked up because it it truly is, you know, you sit, you're, you're standing on the, in the rehearsal room, auditioning, and you're looking across the table at Stephen Sondheim and Hal Prince, and yeah, it was, you know, you just, John Weidman, of course, it's, it's just um, pretty fantastic. Yeah, it's intimidating and it's fantastic. And but I will say this: I I, uh, I sang a song that he had just finished. We were in rehearsal. We were not. It was not in Chicago, so we hadn't even. Uh, this was not even for the production. This was for the first couple of readings of what was then called Gold, before it became Bounce after Wise Guys, <laughs> and uh, it's gone through many many iterations. Uh, and Sondheim had written. The song at the end of Act Two that that Wilson and Addison sing to each other, uh, called "Go," where Addison is saying, "Get out of my life! I can't stay." They're brothers, and they they've been just terrible to each other. Especially the character I play, Wilson, was just a terrible, terrible brother. He was not good to his brother. Um, and finally, his brother has had it, and he says, "Get out of my life!" And they sing this song, and 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 wilson sings a line you don't want me to go admit you don't want me to go and he's they it's like a love song that and Mm. i think steve sondheim was very very uh open about this like it is like a love affair these two brothers they love each other and they hate each other well uh we finished the song and i turned and Steve was wiping tears out of his eyes, and you know that's a moment you don't forget. Yeah, uh, uh, it's it's a precious moment in in an actor's life when when your hero, your idol, your this this guy who's like like the god of musicals, is moved by something you've you've just done. It it felt it felt pretty great.
0: Yeah, and I do want to ask why you think ultimately, as you said, bounce didn't bounce to Broadway. Why?
2: Why it's, I, I think for the same reasons that it's never had, a, it's never worked. I want to believe, and I am not uh, an expert for God's sake. I, uh, you know, um, I know my limits, but I will say this, unless the audience has somebody to root for at the end of the story that you want things to work out for them, for whoever it is. They're, they have to have somebody in the story that they want things to work out well for them at the end. If you don't have that, I think even in Sweeney Todd, you really want Sweeney and Mrs. Lovett to somehow find happiness together. No. You want You want them to somehow come to their senses and I don't know what you think. What could ever possibly make all those wrongs right again? But but you want something for them because there's heart involved. The problem with Bounce is that that Wilson, my character, was such a con artist and such a uh, he you know he, he would sell the ground underneath you if he could make it you know make it happen. That's a hard character to care about. Yeah. So I don't really you care about him, and then Addison, his brother, suffers from his own level of narcissism. That I think it it's a tough one. That's a tough one, and I think that ultimately that was the the thing that that made it not work. But John Weidman is much smarter than I am, and so is Steve Sonheim For God's sake, and if they couldn't figure it out, again, what I said, uh, I think is true. There's an an alchemy that is involved in a hit musical that I think if people could bottle it, it, it'd be done every second. Yeah. So, but I was thrilled and honored to be a part of the ride and uh, to give it a shot.
0: So um, going back to Phantom for just a second, I do want to ask what happened to make you leave for the final time after?
2: It was just time. Uh, It was time. Again, I, I think I said, if, I, if I'd done it that entire seven years of actual time on the stage, I don't think I would have made it that long. The fact that it, that it was two, three and a half year runs was, I just don't, I just don't think you can keep doing that and sustain it. And it was time. It was just time
0: so before i um ask you about this next show i do want to ask how much you want to say or can say about rebecca because i know that a lot sort of happened happened with that
2: uh i don't i don't really have much to tell you about it Uh um it it it, you know i was i was involved for about 10 seconds and it (laughs) didn't happen i got a call from from the producer the weekend before it was supposed to start rehearsals, we had been. I had my costume fittings. Uh, um, I had taken part in a backers' audition of some kind where we did a, a presentation of some of the musical numbers uh, on 42nd Street, some in a club somewhere, I forget. Uh, and then suddenly it was kaput. And um, I. D- I am as much in the dark as as anyone about this. I I really don't know what happened. I mean, I know, I basically know the story about what happened, Um, but um, I don't know any of the inside dirt on it.
0: So then moving on to the Cy Coleman show that you did off Broadway, which I'm curious about too. So did you like performing in this, almost like a cabaret?
2: I loved it. I loved it. Yeah. Uh, And with a big... Big wonderful swinging band behind us—a great, great jazz band—and uh, Cy Coleman great songs. And uh, it was very elegant. We we all wore dinner jackets. And, uh, you know, it was it was very, very, very cool, very, very fun.
0: And what were some of your favorite Cy Coleman songs that you got
2: to see? Uh, well, the best is yet to come. Of course, was the the title song to it. Uh, loved it so much. I loved, I, loved, uh, I loved all the other people's songs. I mean, Lilius White's uh, Oldest Profession. Oh my God, what a killer that number was every night. She's just dynamite, just dynamite. Uh, it amazes me. I was always jealous that Billy Stritch got to sing It Amazes Me. I just think that's one of the greatest songs. And, but I couldn't have done it like Billy. Um, uh, I just thought that was perfection. Watching him and hearing him sing that song every night—that was that was truly remarkable. Um, uh, but it was just a delight. It was such a fun kind of departure from the things that I usually do or or have been doing. Certainly a, a nice change of scenery from "She Loves Me" or uh, "Kiss of the Spider Woman" or "Phantom." Anything.
0: Yeah. So your last Broadway show to date, what I was lucky enough to see you in it was Gigi, which was of yeah. course wonderful. So how did that first first come about?
2: Well, thank you for that. Uh it um Yeah. I just got a call. Um Eric Schaefer wanted to see me for it. And uh I we we had done a couple of workshops together of things before that hadn't gone and um I I grew up loving that show so much, Um, but you will not, you'll probably find this funny, but I, when when they called and said, they want to see you for Gigi, I was so excited because I had grown up loving the movie. And this is a sign of how actors really don't have a very good sense of, of who they are, how much they've aged. I thought they wanted to see me for the part <laughs> the Gaston part and not the, not not the Maurice Chevalier honore <laughs> i didn't realize i I'd, I'd put on a few years over time but uh uh what a trip and what a thrill to again again, uh, like with she loves me, it was a gift to play honore and to to pl- be the guy who sings you know i'm glad i'm not young anymore and uh great 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 songs um just a just a great experience I, unfortunately of course it didn't run um we opened at the same time that american in paris opened we uh the show it was never uh learner and lowe's strongest uh some really terrific songs uh a problematic book and certainly a problematic book in in modern times yeah. because of the subject matter so it you know there were many reasons why it didn't quite work but we were thrilled to be a part of this beautiful delicious gorgeous production
0: yeah and what did you think or what was it like to have those sort of changes that they made to make it more more acceptable
2: mm-hmm. well i have a i have a bone to pick with eric about about taking away thank heaven for little girls uh, from honore in the movie honore the character i played opens the movie by singing directly to the camera thank heaven for little girls they grow up in the most delightful way and they felt that that was kind of uh kind of gross to hear an old man singing about little girls but i i beg to differ i think that the meaning of that song for me is not about him being some kind of lechy old guy leering at the young girls. He's saying, isn't it great how life happens and that young little girls grow up to be big girls and and beautiful young women and and that's life. Uh, And I also think that the show suffered from that not being the opening number because people know that song. And there's something I think comforting about coming into a theater to see a revival of a show, especially a show like this that never really had a a, a proper Broadway run, that you to see something familiar to start the song off to start the evening off with with a song like "Thank Heaven for Little Girls," I think could have been a very charming way to start this the the play. Uh, but that's just my opinion. I they don't pay me to they don't pay me to to make those decisions. So uh, that's just my two cents.
0: So you did do um, Grey Gardens out of town, I think, right after that?
2: Yeah, yeah. So
0: was this a role that you had wanted to do before? No,
2: I never ever, ever imagined that I would play that role. Um, uh, and uh, I don't really play the piano. Uh, at that point, I really didn't. Uh, I have since been studying piano, which I do love. It's one of, oh, my, wow. one of my favorite hobbies. Uh, something I do every day, but at that point, I had not, I had not really, I was not up to playing the piano, so I faked it, but uh, uh, Bob Stillman, who played the part uh, in the original production, plays the piano, and he accompanied himself singing, which I'm so jealous that he was able to do that, do it so beautifully. Um, I hope someday to be able to do that, but that's my, that's my ongoing goal as a, as a pianist, but yeah, but no, I I I had no idea that I was going to be playing that part, but it was a great experience to to do it. Yeah, uh, And yeah.
0: I do want to ask about um being back with Betty Buckley. I think almost thirty years later.
2: Yeah, it was just heaven. Um, mm-hmm. we didn't really interact much because she. It's really the first act is all just really basically. Betty and uh, Rebecca York as uh, Little Edie and Big Edie. Um, yeah. Well, wait. No. Yeah. You know. You know how it goes. Yeah, it's <laughs> yeah. very confusing. But uh, we had a great time. It was a production. Michael Wilson directed. Um, just, just terrific. Andy Einhorn was our music director. We had a great time.
0: And then the the last show I want to ask you about was the last show you did before quarantine, which I also got to see and was just so wonderful, which was A Confession of Lily Dare with Charles Bush. So how, because I know you you hadn't done shows with Charles Bush before,
2: had you? I had done only, no, I'd only done a one-night-only kind of a benefit uh, at the Lucille Lortel of Bell Book and Candle. Um, We did a, a, you know, a kind of concert reading of it and uh, staged reading, kind of and uh carl anders again was director and um uh, of course to my delight i'd always been a fan of charles and suddenly then uh to be asked to do lily dare and to play this this great villain uh, was just too delicious to pass up i was so so thrilled and honored to be asked um and it t- again totally fell into my lap it was just a, a phone call it was a, actually an email from charles oh. saying um would you be in our show <laughs> uh yes let me think about it yes um so uh, it was that was just just great and we we first did it down at theater for a new audience and we ran for just i don't know maybe three four weeks and and then that was it. We thought maybe it would move then, but but there wasn't enough uh, tailwind behind it to get it to the next stage. So it then a, a year later, a year plus later, uh, Carl called and said, we're on, we're doing this Cherry Lane Theater, primary stages. And uh, that was a sweet, sweet thing to play at that beautiful old theater, historic theater in New York.
0: And what did you like about sort of inhabiting this this is another period piece?
2: yeah, yeah, isn't it funny? again, I'm like flirting with that that turn of the twentieth century in every show that i I do almost uh, with a few exceptions um yeah, it's 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 great uh again, I studied history in college, don't forget, so. I I was always kind of a fan of of history, and so it's always fun to go back and and kind of imagine what if, and uh, it, mostly I just have to say it was it was so delightful to
0: yeah.
2: see Charles at work, and to to uh, you know one of my favorite moments was backstage at that tiny, tiny little backstage at the Cherry Lane. There's no room. If you sneeze, the audience will will see the curtains move. You know, it's, it's, you're so close. And I would go back behind the stage. There was a crossover behind the stage, behind a little curtain. And Charles would be sitting there between entrances on a chair and. Listening to the play going on on stage and. I would sit there with him and I would just steal looks at Charles listening to his play being performed on stage. And I just thought, this is kind of one of those rare experiences where the, the actor, the star of the show is also the playwright. Yeah. And uh, to, I just thought it was a very, a very special kind of experience um, besides the fact that it was hilariously funny and brilliantly played by Charles. Uh, and Carl Andrews, what a what a gorgeous job he did directing that, and the cast was sublime. Yeah. So,
0: so I do want to ask, um, what, or what was next for you at the beginning of the quarantine? What would you have been doing?
2: I didn't really have anything lined up. Uh, we closed uh, a week before everything shut down. Literally that fast. It all happened that fast. Yeah. Um and uh, uh, you know now we're we're in this crazy crazy limbo yeah and uh i am hopeful uh, i teach right now you know i teach um i teach at myu and mostly not mostly everything is now remote right now for the past year we've been remote teaching by remote by zoom and um that is something i love doing uh and I you know again, I guess it's just about i think I've been an actor all my life, and I think that that the part of part of what's made it work for me is that I never know what's coming next and i and I'm open to whatever that might be. And I'm also getting a little bit older charles so i'm not I'm not in that big a hurry to rush into something if 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 it doesn't excite me or doesn't yeah, you know really kind of tickle me enough to, to get, to get excited about. So, uh, I, I don't know. We'll see. I, I can tell you this. I'm not done. I'm not done yet.
0: That's, that's great. Cause I'll be looking forward to seeing, seeing you and well,
2: thank you. Thank you very much.
0: Well, thank you for doing this interview. I've had
2: such a
1: great time. Thank you.
2: Thank you. It's been my pleasure, Charles, and I wish you all the best.
1: Listeners, thank you for tuning in, and remember to come back next time when I am joined by the founder of the Gingold Group, David Stoller. The Gingold Group creates theater and theater-related programs that promote the humanitarian ideals central to the work of activist playwright George Bernard Shaw, including universal human rights, the freedom of thought and speech, the equality of all living beings, and the responsibility of individuals to promote societal progress. Now Now in its 16th year, it is the only theater group ever to perform all 65 of George Bernard Shaw's works, and stars like Lillianne Montevecchi, George S. Irving, and Marion Seldes are among those who have participated in these monthly readings. The Gingold Group has also put on six larger off-Broadway productions, including the currently running Mrs. Warren's Profession, starring Karen Ziemba and Robert Cuccioli, which is playing its final weeks off-Broadway now, and I highly recommend it. As a performer, David appeared on Broadway in Cabaret, Hello, Dolly, Evita, and more. He has created amazing theater on all sides of the profession, and you won't want to miss this episode. Thanks for tuning in.